0: Support for Criminal comes from BetterHelp Online Therapy. If I had an extra hour each day, I might spend it just being still and reading. No phone anywhere in sight. Figuring out what feels good isn't always easy. Therapy can help you suss out what is most important and make the time for it. And BetterHelp can make that entire process convenient and painless. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist in no time at all. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash criminal today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash criminal. Support for Criminal comes from 1Password. 1Password uses industry-leading security to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. All you need to remember is 1Password that protects everything else. All of your logins, your credit card numbers, bank account numbers, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom criminal. That's number 1password.com slash criminal for two free weeks. one slash criminal. This episode contains adult language and descriptions of violence. Please use discretion.
1: I, I used to say about Nub City is if they would do this to themselves, think about what they would do to you. That was going to be my tagline for the movie. If they would do this to themselves, just think about what they would do to you.
0: Errol Morris is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker and writer. He's perhaps best known for his 1988 documentary The Thin Blue Line, about a wrongful conviction in a murder case. He's also made movies about a pet cemetery, a lion tamer, and the U.S. government's actions in the Vietnam War. But there's one movie he's always wanted to make— that he tried to make early in his career, but never figured out how.
1: I remember one weekend, I'm reading the New York Times magazine, and there's an article about an insurance investigator named John Healy. And he's talking about his crimes, working as an investigator. It's a half a paragraph in the article. He mentions the worst case he's ever been involved in. Of course, this immediately gets my attention. The worst case, oh boy, Nub City. The town in the swamp in Florida where there's been this extraordinary history of insurance crime. What kind of crime? Self-mutilation. So the way in which insurance policies are written, you you can take out a policy if you're going on a hunting trip, uh, say you're going to be gone for a week, 10 days, whatever, uh, and you want some protection against the possibility of a hunting accident, God forbid. You take out a policy that has an accidental dismemberment clause. But, you know, you can take out just so much insurance on a hunting trip. Much better, life insurance. Most life insurance has a provision, an accidental dismemberment provision, that if you lose both arms, or both legs, or an arm and a leg, You get the full gajinkus, the whole life insurance policy. It also works if you put out both eyes or put an auger through both ears. But the preferred method was an arm and a leg on opposite sides of the body so you could use a crutch. And there was a whole mess of those guys. Nub City. The Nub Club.
0: Is it really called the Nub Club?
1: Well, not by them, but by the insurance companies, it's called the Nub Club, yes. Yeah.
0: Errol Morse went to visit insurance investigator John Healy.
1: And I tell him, you know, this Nub City thing, I'm kind of excited about this story. (laughs) He said, you're not going to go down there. That place is, is dangerous. They'll kill you. Don't even think about it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And I went down there against good advice. And I don't know what I was thinking.
0: I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. When Errol Morris first visited the place that insurance investigator John Healy called Nub City—actually a town called Vernon, Florida, 90 miles west of Tallahassee—it had a population of less than 1,000 people. This was in the 1970s. Vernon was a rural town, and John Healy wrote that there was little or no work there, so most of the people who did work had to drive 30 or 40 miles to other bigger towns nearby. In the first part of the 20th century, the steamboat had stopped coming through, and the mill shut down. The county seat was moved from Vernon to a nearby town. By 1960, more than half of the population of Vernon received welfare aid. According to John Healy, the first dismemberment occurred sometime in the 1950s, when a man shot his hand off and collected $1,500 on a small policy. After that, he said, Quote, word spread like wildfire throughout the community. By the early 1960s, insurance experts estimated that more than two thirds of all loss of limb accident claims in the United States came from Vernon, Florida, and the panhandle area around it. An editor at the local paper wrote You have to realize there was a time when these people ate possums because there was nothing else to eat. So you had to go out and run down a possum, plug him to death, and eat him. What do you need your left foot for if you can cut it off, get $200,000, and not have to worry about chasing possums anymore? There were a number of investigations. But according to the Tampa Bay Times in 2007, not a single insurance claimant was ever convicted of fraud. As one insurance official put it, It was hard to make a jury believe a man would shoot off his foot.
1: I was a moron. Because what do you think you're going to do, Mr. Morris? You're going to go around to people's houses and ask them about how they committed insurance fraud? These people have committed horrible crimes. They've mutilated themselves. What are you going to ask them? What are they going to say to you? What are your crazy crazy expectations of what is going to transpire here. And I learned pretty quickly this was not a good way to go. I meet the sheriff of Washington County, Nub City is in Washington County. I'm looking at the criminal docket. I want to know what kind of crimes do they have down here? And I can't really find any murders. None. So I asked the sheriff, I said, you know, um, there don't seem to be any murders down here in Washington County. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, down here, we don't have murders. We just have disappearances. And he gives me this odd look. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I actually don't want to be a disappearance down here. <laughs> but notwithstanding, I moved down there. I w- went to the, an insurance agent, and he tried to construct with me all of the incidences of you know, uh, insurance uh, claims, accidents. Um, and with his help, I was able to piece together a list of uh, about 30, 30 of these cases.
0: The insurance agent helping Errol Morris, L.W. Berdashaw, told the Tampa Bay Times about one man who collected payments from 11 different insurance companies. Bertishaw himself had sold the man a 10-day policy to cover a hunting trip. And on the very first day out, the man claimed his friend accidentally shot him in the foot. Berdashaw remembered being at dinner at his daughter's house when he got the call about the shooting. He says he didn't even need to be told what happened. He knew right away that the man had been shot in his left foot. When his daughter asked him how he knew, he said, because that son of a bitch is going to drive a Cadillac with his right foot. He described another payout to a different man who lost a foot. That man claimed that he accidentally shot himself when he thought he saw a squirrel on the ground. His insurance policy was less than 12 hours old. There is also a man who sawed off his left hand at work, a man who shot off his foot protecting his chickens at night, a man who shot off his hand while trying to shoot a hawk, and a man who somehow managed to lose a hand and a foot in an accident involving a rifle and a tractor. Burdeshaw had sold policies to all of them. He wasn't the only insurance agent trying to make sense of this increase in accident claims. Specifically, why more and more people in Florida were losing their hands and feet. One insurance agent, Murray Armstrong of Liberty National, told newspapers about a farmer who lost his left foot to a shotgun blast. This particular farmer had taken out so much insurance that his insurance bills exceeded his income. Dismemberment was a feature of nearly all of the farmer's policies. When the accident occurred, a tourniquet was found in the farmer's pocket. He claimed that he carried a tourniquet, quote, in case of snake bite. He also happened to be driving his wife's automatic transmission car around the farm the day the accident happened. He usually drove a pickup truck. The insurance agent pointed out that it seemed pretty convenient that he happened to be driving a car with automatic transmission, so he wouldn't have to use his left foot to work the clutch. According to the insurance agent, the farmer's coverage with around 38 companies exceeded $2 million. But in the end, he agreed to settle for about half. An attorney with Liberty National described another case, where three men in northwest Florida each lost a hand or a foot in accidents involving the same saw. Errol Morse wanted to find out what was going on. But when he got to Vernon, Florida, hoping to find some answers and make a documentary, the only people open to talking to him were insurance agents. He was only able to speak with a few residents. He says that some people in Vernon didn't appreciate him asking questions. One night at a bar a man put his cigarette out on Errol Morris's lapel. He says another man tried to run over his cinematographer with a truck. He says the only time he was ever beaten up in his life was in Vernon.
1: So that first trip was unsuccessful. And I don't know what I would do today, but if the idea was that I was going to go with a film crew around to these various houses and, and talk to these people it was pretty clear pretty quickly that that was not going to work out very well.
0: Eventually, so many people in and around Vernon were filing insurance claims that insurance companies reportedly stopped selling to them. According to the Tampa Bay Times, some insurance companies implemented a rule that they would not pay if the policyholder lost a hand or a foot within a year of signing the policy. The Florida legislature later outlawed these kinds of exclusion clauses. As insurance investigators tried to crack down, some people reported they couldn't get insurance of any kind. In 1972, one woman told the Tampa Bay Times that when she tried to insure her home after her husband died, she was told, quote, "...it couldn't be done, not in this town." That same year, insurance investigator John Healy told the New York Times, we pretty well stopped this thing. Errol Morris never did get to make a movie about the alleged insurance fraud, but he did go back to Vernon, Florida, to make a completely different documentary. The movie doesn't exactly tell a story. It's just people of Vernon talking. A couple who believes some sand they've collected in a jar is growing, a preacher who's obsessed with the word, therefore, and the only police officer in town who waits in a squad car for something to happen.
2: I have different areas. I like to sit around and wait. I sit here a lot of times. Since this car was sitting around so much, while the people, uh, they don't know for sure if we have a police officer on duty here or not. So I can sit here and catch a lot of them as they come across the bridge or come down through town. Like, his tanker, he sounds like he's getting on it now.
0: Errol Morris called the movie "The Vernon, Florida, and there's no mention of any accidents or insurance fraud. Many residents of Vernon were not happy about the movie. In August of 1982, Vernon City Councilwoman Narvel Armstrong was quoted in the Tampa Bay Times as saying that Errol Morris came here to do one thing, run down the town and when he found he couldn't do what he came here to do he made Vernon look bad picked on the eccentric things Fox Creative This is advertiser content from NetSuite
3: I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform Podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I have loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of, of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user-friendly right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data and NetSuite allows us to see it all.
0: Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash criminal. That's netsuite.com slash criminal to get your own KPI checklist. Thanks to 1Password for their support. It seems like online password requirements keep getting longer and more complex. It's a lot to keep track of, especially when we're supposed to be changing our passwords all the time to be safe. 1Password uses industry-leading security to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. OnePassword generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. You only need to know one password. That password protects everything else your logins, your credit card, secure notes, or the Office Wi Fi password. Join the millions of users and over 100,000 businesses who trust OnePassword's award winning password manager. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com/criminal. That's number one, password.com/criminal for two free weeks, onepassword.com/criminal. After the film "Vernon, Florida" was released in 1981, Errol Morris had trouble getting financing for other film projects. So he became a private detective. He once said being a private detective is having, quote, the ability to sit and talk to people and have people, even more importantly, talk to you. It comes down to an interest in finding out things. So I learned quickly that what I did as a filmmaker was not so different from what I was doing as a private investigator.
1: I remember I had one job where I had to pose as a filmmaker in order to get information. And I thought, this is really fucked up. I am a filmmaker. <laughs> I'm an out-of-work filmmaker. I'm not making a film as we speak right now. But I'm a filmmaker. I've made a couple of films. People actually even thought they might be pretty good. But I couldn't get work as a filmmaker, so I'm working as a private detective posing as a filmmaker.
0: Was it exciting work?
1: Yeah. I like... I like being a detective. Were you good at it? I think I'm very good at it. I'm self-serving of me to say so. But yeah, I think I'm good at it. I made this, this movie, The Thin Boo Line, a movie that I'm still very, very proud of. And that was an investigation. And unusual in, in all of these movies that are made of true crime stories, I, through some strange set of circumstances, uncovered a terrible miscarriage of justice in Texas. You don't get to do that every day. I I always think that the best ways into a story are unexpected ways into a story. I've never had this desire to go through the front door, but to go through a side door, climb through a window, maybe if necessary, like Santa Claus, go down the chimney. Um, I had come to Texas to interview a Dallas psychiatrist, Dr. James Gregson, who testified at capital murder trials and played a very, very critical, crucial role in sentencing people to death.
0: James Grigson was sometimes called Dr. Death. He testified in more than 100 capital cases in Texas, almost always for the prosecution.
1: And so at his behest, I went down to a number of Texas prisons and interviewed people who had been sentenced to death. Some of them had been commuted off of death row, but all of them at one time or another had been sentenced to death in Texas, in part because of the testimony that Dr. Grigson had offered at their capital murder trials. And that was the beginning of it. And quite simply, I had no reason to believe that any of them were innocent. That was not why I was talking to them. That was not why I was there. I was not there to uncover miscarriages of justice or to rebalance the scales of justice in some way. But the Adams case, which became the thin blue line, grabbed a hold of me.
0: The thin blue line tells the story of a man on death row named Randall Adams who was convicted of killing a Dallas, Texas, police officer in 1976. Adams always maintained his innocence. In the film, Errol Morris interviews almost everyone involved in the case. The judge, the detectives, witnesses. He re-examines the evidence and looks at inconsistencies.
1: I went to Austin because every single murder trial, capital murder trial, is automatically appealed under Texas statutes to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And you go to their library, go down to the basement, you can get every single transcript for every murder trial. You can sit down there and read to your heart's content, which is what I did. And in reading the trial of Randall Adams, now this is a guy I had spoken to without a camera. I had met him a preliminary meeting. I couldn't understand his story. He was one of those people. Not everybody said this, but a number of people did say this. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. This is terrible. Adams kept talking about the kid. I needed to talk to the kid, the kid. And I didn't understand the case. I go to Austin, I start reading the transcript of his trial. And I thought, oh, this doesn't quite add up, does it? Uh, I love, 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 love film noir. Um, The the film noir that I particularly love, uh, Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum. And this line kept coming back to me again and again and again. I don't quite quote it accurately. But it's the essence of it. Robert Mitchum is in the back of a taxi cab. He's talking to the taxi driver. And he says, I could see the frame, but I couldn't see the picture. And that was very much my experience of the Randall Adams case. I had the strong feeling that he had been framed. But the details of exactly what had happened and how it had happened and what it meant, I did not know and wouldn't know until I spent over a year and a half investigating.
0: Had you talked to other people in prison who were proclaiming their innocence, but you could kind of tell were really actually guilty and... Was there anything different in the way that Randall Adams was asserting his innocence in the way that he was telling you that made you think, maybe this guy really is innocent?
1: In retrospect, yes. But how you view what someone says is so dependent on what you think about what they have done and who they are. When someone tells you they're innocent, who's been on death row... The inclination is to think, maybe not. Um, I knew that there was some missing piece in this story. It's interesting, in in retrospect, because a lot of this is in retrospect, Adams had a very strange way. This is the guy who was convicted of a murder that he didn't commit, who wasn't there, was home in bed, he had a way of talking. It's really crazy way of talking. A kind of sing-song way of talking, where he would say things almost as if he had gone through some kind of performance piece, this endless recitation that he had gone through many, many, many times, but he knew no one was going to believe him, but yet he did it anyway. Now I look back on it, I think you told the story as a story that was true but you knew while telling the story I was never going to believe that that was the case. There's something so unbelievably sad about that.
0: Here's Randall Adams speaking with Errol Morris in the film.
2: His whole story from the start was two hours late. I met this kid at around 10 o'clock in the morning. He says we met at noon. I say we were at the Bronco Bowl at 2 or 3 o'clock. He says it was 5 or 6 o'clock. Everything that we did coincide with, he was two hours late. Two hours later. Two hours into the night. His testimony is that As we were getting off the freeway on Inwood Avenue, he stated that I'm driving the car, that we're pulled over. He gets scared and he slumps down in the seat of the car. That as the officer walks up and shines his flashlight and I roll down my window, I pull the pistol out and blow this man away. His testimony is, when I finally do drive to the motel, I get out, I tell him, don't worry about it, forget this ever happened. Now that's crazy. That's crazy.
0: This person who Randall Adams said was two hours late about everything— who testified against Randall Adams in the trial, was named David Harris. David Harris had testified that he had seen Randall Adams shoot the police officer several times. Randall Adams begged Errol Morris to go find him and talk to him.
1: And I thought, what the hell? I'm going to try to find this kid. He had come from a small town in East Texas, Viter, and I uh, found David Harris's parole officer. It turns out that since these murders, he had been in prison for other crimes. he had just been released from San Quentin and was living with his family back in East Texas. And I asked the parole officer, uh, would you mind giving me his phone number? I'd love to talk to this guy. And she said, no, 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 I can't do that. He says, but you give me your phone number, and if he wants to talk to you, he'll call you. I thought, oh, okay. I gave her my phone number. I thought I'd never, ever, ever, ever hear from this person. But within, I would say, five minutes, he called me. He called me and invited me to come out to Viter. Meet him at a bar in the swamp outside of Viter.
0: Viter, Texas was once known as a KKK stronghold, And as a sundown town, where Black people were threatened with violence for being outside after dark.
1: It was a scary place. I mean, a really scary place. And David Harris was still like a kid, covered with tattoos. And clearly he was meeting me because he wanted information from me. He thought, oh, Randall Adams has probably been executed. And he was surprised, I told him. You know, the guy still very much alive. And so then David Harris kept asking me, well, what does he have to say about me? And I try to be diplomatic. I say, well, you know, he's upset about a number of things. In fact, you f- fingered him for a capital murder. And we sat in this bar, drinking. Um, And at the end of our meeting, he kept saying to me, I want you to be really careful driving home. I was driving back to Huntsville from Viter, Texas. I want you to be really careful. And I've often thought, if someone tells you to be really, really careful driving home once, they probably mean that they want you to be really careful driving home. If they say it twice, that's something different. And if they say it three times, it's a threat. And I remember being freaked out. And at first, I thought he was following me. I thought these headlights. I was completely spooked. And then the headlights drifted away. I thought, he's gone. Um, And I stopped at a gas station, and I called my wife in New York, and I said to her, "I, uh, I just met David Harris, and I think he might be the real killer. Hmm. And my wife started screaming at me. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot! So that's the beginning of The Thin Blue Line, if you like.
0: The Thin Blue Line was released in 1988. The final scene is a recording of David Harris telling Errol Morris that he's sure that Randall Adams is innocent of the murder. Here's part of that recording the first voice you hear is Errol Morris.
1: Well, what do you think about whether or not he's innocent? I'm sure he is. How can you be sure?
2: Because I'm the one that knows.
1: Were you surprised that the police blamed him? They didn't blame
3: him. I did.
0: After the film was released, there was a motion for a new trial for Randall Adams. David Harris recanted his original testimony and said, I realize I've been responsible for a great injustice. David Harris was never charged with the murder of the police officer. He was in prison for another murder when the film was released, and he was executed in 2004. The evidence presented in The Thin Blue Line is credited with helping to exonerate Randall Adams. He was released from prison in 1989. The Museum of Modern Art describes The Thin Blue Line as, quote, "...arguably one of the most influential films of the last 50 years, and a seminal true crime document." Support for Criminal comes from Seed Health. Seed Health's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic gives your body what it needs when it needs it. Supporting your gut health can be a pretty great starting point for supporting your overall health. That means getting plenty of prebiotics and probiotics. A symbiotic like Seed is a combination of both. Seed helps you create a healthy microbial environment in your gut. And not only will your gut feel it, but the rest of your body too. It promotes clearer skin, good cardiovascular health, and helps you maintain healthy blood cholesterol levels. I've been taking two a day, and just last week, someone told me my skin looked really great. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com criminal and use code 25criminal to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com criminal with code... 25 criminal Grey's Anatomy the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. How did you learn to investigate? How did you... I don't know if you learn that kind of thing. Do you?
1: It's fueled by some kind of strange curiosity, some kind of strange desire to find out more, to learn something that you don't know. It's like interviewing people. It's not even about what you want to know. It's wanting to know something you don't know. I often say about interviews, to the extent I know what someone is going to say in an interview, why bother? Why even do the interview? Why talk to anybody? Um, Unless the nature of the enterprise is just a recitation of stuff that you already expected to hear or wanted to hear or thought you were going to hear. Um, What I love in the end about interviewing people, whether it's in the course of of writing a book or making a movie, hearing something truly extraordinary, something that you could never even have made up on your own.
0: Like what? Can you remember a couple that... I suppose the very
1: beginnings of this were interviews that I did when I was a graduate student at Berkeley... In the Santa Cruz area, there were a series of serial killers, mass murderers, however you want to describe them. Uh, This is in the 70s. That fascinated me. And that was the beginning of it. I started to interview killers. I started to interview killers and their families. Killers and their psychiatrists. um, By the way, if you ask me why I was doing this stuff, I don't know. My mother, who never really liked my talking to mass murderers, my mother had this uh, amazing euphemistic style, said to me, you know, Errol, I wish you would spend more time with people your own age. And I said, but mom, the mass murderers are my own age. (laughs) Uh, Herbie Mullen. Um, Herbie had
0: just been convicted of 10 counts of murder. In August 1973, 26-year-old Herbert Mullen was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and eight counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison.
1: And I went to visit his father. This is right after the sentencing. Near the end of the interview, he said, are you going to see Herbie? you going to visit Herbie? I said, yes, I I probably am. He said, well, there's something I'd like you to tell Herbie for me. Tell him you better watch out or he's going to be in big trouble. I said, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'll tell him. I suppose, in parentheses, sir, Herbie is already... He's there. <laughs> ...in big trouble. No need to tell him that. And I didn't. You, you interviewed... Here's here. I'll give, you, I'll give you another story as long as we're in the Please. story mode. I had been an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and no one who lived in Wisconsin, probably no one who lives in the whole area, maybe in the entire United States, was unaware of Ed Gein.
0: Ed Gein was a serial killer in the 1940s and 50s whose crimes inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Psycho, and the Silence of the Lambs. When police examined his home in Plainfield, Wisconsin, they found that he had collected body parts and had used them to make household items, clothing, and masks. He admitted to killing two women and was hospitalized in psychiatric institutions until his death. Errol Morris says he spent about a year investigating Ed Gein's crimes and visited him in what was then called the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane.
1: And the superintendent of Central State Hospital was a Dr. Schubert, who I befriended. And we had a whole number of conversations about Ed Gein in the cafeteria. And I asked him at one point, is there any truth to these claims that Ed was a cannibal? And he looked at me appalled. He said, absolutely not. I talked to Ed about this very thing. And Ed assured me, although he had eaten human flesh many times, he never enjoyed it. Oh, boy.
0: Well, what was it like the first time you sat down with him? What did he look like? And how did he treat you? Well, how was your back and forth, the manner between the two of you?
1: He was very, very soft-spoken. In almost an inaudible voice, spent a lot of time, he had a shortwave radio in his room, listening to Radio Moscow, popular in those days. And we talked about a whole number of things, I never asked him, I was possibly embarrassed. I never asked him about the details of the crimes. But we did talk about a whole number of different things.
0: Errol Morris didn't end up making a movie about Ed Gein, but he was thinking about it. He'd actually talked with director Werner Herzog about meeting in Wisconsin to exhume the body of Ed Gein's mother to see whether Ed Gein had stolen her corpse from a cemetery, as was alleged. But they never went through with it. We checked in with Errol Morris about this by email after our interview and he said he, quote, "...ultimately declined to participate in the exhumation of the grave." Herzog ended up shooting part of a film there in Plainfield. As the story goes, Errol Morris took offense that Werner Herzog was filming in what he thought of as his landscapes. Werner Herzog gave him $2,000 as a kind of apology. The $2,000 was just enough money to fund a trip to Vernon, Florida, Otherwise known as Nub City. Errol Morse says that even now, more than 40 years later, he still wants to make that movie.
1: There's a time, I suppose, in everyone's life where you feel very acutely the time is running out. I think I feel that way today. So many stories that I still would like to tell, so many things that I would still like to investigate. There's something about the mystery of people, uh, the mystery of what people do or don't do, that is still unendingly compelling to me. Crime is just a way of looking at human behavior, a way of looking at ourselves, of trying to understand why we do what we do. I used to joke about, why does the chicken cross the road? Why do we, why do we tell each other this joke and this punchline to get to the other side? Why is that even funny, if it is funny, which it well might not be? Um, To me, ultimately, it's been a question about human motivation or chicken motivation, if you prefer. Why did the chicken cross the road? Is there a kind of deep understanding that we might have of that chicken and his desire to get to the other side? Or is there really nothing there? Is the joke that somehow we try to find an explanation where there is none? I don't know.
0: Created by Lauren Spore and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson and Aaron Wade. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Special thanks to Michelle Harris. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio. WUNC were a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Shows like Home Cooking. Home Cooking launched in March to help you figure out what to cook and keep you company during the quarantine. The show is co-hosted by chef Samin Nasrat, author of the best-selling cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and host of the Netflix series of the same name. She's joined by Rishikesh Hirway, whom you might know as the host and producer of Song Exploder, also an upcoming Netflix series. Home Cooking has been named one of the best podcasts of 2020 by Time, Esquire, Vulture, Harper's Bazaar, and more. Go listen. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia.